Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 43 of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Shasodia. Hey, Raj. Hey, Timothy. Good to see you again. Good to see you. And we're into the fall here and really have a near and dear guest today. And since you've co-authored a book with him, Raj, maybe you'd be the best person to introduce him. <laughs> Well, it's my pleasure. You know, this Bob Chapman is one of my uh, heroes in the world of business and leadership, but even as a, as a human being. Um, I first connected with Bob uh, way back in 2013, uh, just after Conscious Capitalism, the book had come out. And uh, I heard from a friend of mine, Sri Kumar Rao, that uh, there's this company out in St. Louis, and there's this CEO named Bob Chapman. And you know, it's a really fascinating story, and I think that story needs to be told to the world, and maybe you should talk to Bob about it. And initially, you know, having just had that book come out and being busy with all of that, you know, I said, well, we just wrote this book, and if this is just another example of a conscious company, we've already written about that in a couple of books, right? I mean, we can't write a book about every conscious company, so I was a little bit dismissive, I suppose, uh, when I first heard of that. But then I talked to Bob. Uh, and uh, this was probably in March or April of that year. And, uh, you know, I said I had a couple of other projects uh, in the pipeline. And, um, you know, I said, well, let's see. I, at some point, I would like to come out. So in July of that year, July 13th to be exact, uh, Bob flew to Boston uh, in his plane with uh, three or four of his team members. And they flew me to Wisconsin and they made a PowerPoint presentation on that flight. I still have that deck with me and told me the story. And then we land in this little town, I think it's called Phillips, Wisconsin. And uh, I get driven to the, uh, the plant that they have there that used to be called PCMC, I think. And I was put into a conference room with about a dozen or so uh, people, all men, middle-aged blue collar men for the most part. And then Bob and all the others left and it was just me and them. And I was still trying to get my uh, head around what is special about this place. I knew that they had acquired that company and many others and change the culture. So I just asked a simple question. I said, okay, tell me what your life was like before Bob Chapman and Barry Waymiller got involved uh, and took over this company and then how it changed. And then I just listened and there was silence. And the next thing I knew, I look up and there's several of these men have tears streaming down their face. And I said, wow, what did I say? <laughs> I just asked a simple question, right? And they're all choked up about it. I said, wow, you know, I mean, you get middle-aged blue collar men to be that emotional in front of each other. I said, there's something unusual about this place. Maybe it's a cult, you know, I don't know. You know what are they uh, doing to these people? Then they started talking and it's just started telling the story of how their life used to be in, a, in an insecure manufacturing environment with very toxic cultures and, uh, you know, sort of uh, harsh 
working environment and uh, and supervisors and bosses and so forth getting laid off frequently having no security for themselves or their families literally being reduced to extreme poverty in some cases one of them told about how ken i think his name was uh, you know his wife and he had just had a baby and this was the third time he got laid off and they had no savings anymore and he literally had to go to the football game and pick up empty cans and bottles and put them in a bag and take them to the store and redeem them to buy some baby formula and things like that you know and then the contrast after barry wemiller acquired this struggling company and and kept everybody and started uh, treating them with respect and dignity and empathy and care and and told them that we can turn this around we know how to do it you will do it we will help uh, and, but we have time don't worry it's not something that has to be done you know overnight it will take time and and slowly things completely turned around and so the same business same location same employees was struggling and dying and couldn't compete with the chinese and the brazilian and now is thriving right and i remember the mayor of that town pointing to bob and saying that man saved our town because 600 people worked in this company that employed for uh, the town of 1400 so every single job in this little town depends on that company being around and if that company dies this town pretty much disappears so that was the the power of this and then as i visited the plants and talked to more people and then we flew to green bay and did that all over again and you know by the end of it i said you know you know conscious capitalism is an evolving thing you know we have these four pillars we talk about purpose but mostly we talk about purpose as in what do we do for our customers right whole foods you know is about their health and well-being and patagonia is about uh, connecting them to the outdoors and so forth but what if you have a company like bobs that makes machinery that makes toilet paper or cardboard boxes or other kinds of packaging equipment and a whole bunch of other things that are part of our lives essential elements but they're not something that is exciting and cutting edge it's not a google or a starbucks or a whole foods or a container store etc right so these are people that are doing basic kinds of manufacturing things uh and bob defined his purpose differently he said purpose our purpose is our people we measure success by the way we impact the lives that we touch right the people whose uh, whose lives are uh, you know who are part of our family here and so what that did to me that our people are the purpose that that really was kind of an aha that you know there's a, there's sort of a dual engine aspect to this right there's a product based purpose and there's a people every company has people so even if you don't have a noble purpose embedded in your product you always have human beings and they are worthy of respect and dignity and that is as high a purpose as you can have so so that became a, a universalizing message any business anywhere in the world can be a conscious business because they can find a higher purpose in their impact they make on their people and their children and their communities so that is one and the other one was leadership and what is leadership and bob talks about and we will hear from him momentarily leadership is the stewardship of the lives entrusted to us so we had thought conscious leadership is about what happens 9 to 5 monday to friday how do we create a an environment filled with meaning and purpose and so forth and you know people do amazing things but as he said it's not just what happens 9 to 5 it's it's, it's the way people are able to live their lives and what happens with their children and their families so it's a stewardship and so the broadening the idea of leadership and deepening the idea of purpose so those were two of the elements and so then i got to know bob and at the end of those two days i said this is a book that must be written it needs to be written and i would be privileged uh, to uh, to partner with you on that so that's how that that journey started and bob turning to you now tell us how you came to be that leader and that human uh, in 2013 that i met 
compared to uh, 1975 when uh, when you took over this struggling money losing uh, 18 million dollar revenue business from your father who had just suddenly passed away of a heart attack and you were all of 29 years old and the bankers came knocking on your door the next day yeah well you know raj um that journey i would say to you my journey has been a very eclectic journey uh but i was guided in the first half of my career career starting you know obviously when i got out of college with what i'd learned in undergraduate in accounting and graduate in my mba program from indiana undergraduate michigan and graduate about creating economic value you know it was all about as i recall it was all about me and my success okay and so when i began this journey i deployed those tools which i had learned in business school about cutting costs you know improving profitability uh, organic growth you know all the things we teach in business school about creating wealth okay economic wealth and so the first half of my career was turning around this 100 year old business which you mentioned which was 18 million and failing and trying to create a future but in along that journey so that began in 75 you know as you know i had some really significant cycles in that journey but in 1997 having survived some of those cycles of mistakes i made and what i learned and i again i say to your viewers from from my greatest mistakes came my greatest learning so you know i got i made them when i was young so i had a chance to to get through that and uh, build a better future but what really turned things around from kind of, I'll call what i was taught what i experienced and what i deployed in terms of being a leader uh happened in 1997 when i i bought this company in south carolina i flew down to be there the first day it was march of 97 and people were talking about in the coffee room about march madness and really having fun talking about which team won how much they won in the office pool and uh, you know this is all hindsight I, i didn't know i was experiencing this but so i was watching out and really paying much attention and i my first meeting was the customer service team but i noticed as it got closer to 8 o'clock when my meeting was going to start that the fun just went out of the bodies as they went from talking about march madness to doing their job and in, and so my in hindsight i reconstructed my what my mind said is why do we why can't business be fun why do we call it work and that was the big moment of uh and so i walked in not having known that i was experiencing that because i just saw people talk i walked into a meeting with our customer service team of the 55 million in revenue 21 million was aftermarket parts and service so i wanted to meet with the team i didn't have any agenda i just wanted to meet with them you know me i'm a very undisciplined creative person so I just sat down to talk to them and uh I said something I never had any experience or I never thought about I just said we're going to play a game whoever sells the most parts wins and if the team makes a team goal the team will win $100 if you win for the week and $100 if if your team wins well they had 21 reasons why that won't work cuz I cover this I can't do this and for every 20 reason they said it wouldn't work I had an answer why it would what now I never tried it never thought about it clearly in hindsight stimulated by watching people play march band so i had, it just my sent the hate so when i say this but it virtually just popped out of me with no thought no experience and the interesting thing is what happened because all i wanted to do in hindsight was to have fun okay why can't business be fun so i made it into a game 
with a relatively small reward. Well, we saw a 20% increase in revenue, but a thousand percent increase in joy. It was amazing when people started to have fun, they, they could look at the scoreboard, they know where they were doing, how the team was doing, they talked to their families about it. It just profoundly changed their attitude as well as our dealing with the customers. So that was the first. Why can't business be fun? So we tried to align fun with value creation. So the second, obviously, Cynthia and I were in church, maybe a year or two later, my mentor was director of our church, gave great sermons about how to live life of meaning and purpose. And one day I looked at Cynthia and said, oh my God, Cynthia, Ed has only got us for one hour a week. We have people for 40 hours a week, every week. We could, we could have a profound influence on their life, more so than our faith, if we simply cared about the people we had the privilege of leading. As I walked out of the uh, church that day, I could show you the spot on the concrete where I had this thought, which led me to the thought, oh my God, business could be the most powerful force for good in the world if we simply cared about the people we had the privilege of leading. So that's the second. The third, as you know, the most significant and, and as I've told the story over years, the people, what people can relate to the most is the wedding story. As all of us have been at a wedding, we've seen these precious young men and women walk down the aisle with their father in front of their family and friends be married. And I was watching my friends walk his daughter down the aisle in this wedding. And as he got to the altar, he said, uh, uh, you know, our mother and I give our daughter to be wed to this young man. And, she, and then he sits down next to his wife and I said, in hindsight, I said, oh, my God, uh, all 12,000 people who work for us, they're not engineers, accountants, hourly workers, production workers, you know, salesmen. They're somebody's precious child, just like that young man and lady that's been placed in our care. And we have a profound influence on their lives. So the, the culmination of those three experiences was the view upon which because to me, before that, it was always about me and my success, okay? And I, I was nice to people. We hired people, but I paid them. That was my contribution to their life. I, had, I did not look at them any other way than a function I needed for my, our, our organization's success, therefore my success. But the wedding story changed it completely for me. I started seeing people not as functions for my success, but as somebody's precious child that's placed in my care. And if I exercise my responsibility as a leader, I could make a profound impact on those people. So that's, that's how the trend, it probably is over a two or three year period of time. And, and I just call them revelations. It wasn't a book, it wasn't a consultant, it wasn't a podcast I heard. It was these revelations that saw me to see my role in life from a totally different angle and more powerful angle, more rewarding angle in terms of the importance of leadership. That's just really beautiful, Bob. That's a really, really beautiful statement of how your journey got to this point. And, and I'm curious for our listeners, okay, so I've now had the big revelations uh, and I'm changing how I see the world. So my mindset is different. My heart is different. Um, what happened on Monday? You know, so, so how did you then practically start to bring this into, into your business? Well, the interesting thing is that we took a step back and said, 
we kind of started reflecting on that journey uh, with our chief people officer, Rhonda Spencer, and we said, there's something bigger here. And we gathered a group of people to try and put the pieces of this eclectic journey together to make sense out of it. Because, you know, these mm-hmm. revelations, and, and we didn't know how to piece it together. So 20 people came together for about two days, and we just talked about what are we experiencing. We started writing things on a board and stood back at one time and we said, oh my God, those are guiding principles of leadership. That's, and, and, and we said, and, and kind of like the golden rule in our company. And I said, you know, what we should do is we should measure success by the way we touch the lives of people, our customers, our team members, our community, our bankers, et cetera. There's a lot of people's lives as we go about our economic endeavor, whose lives we touch. And we need to think about ramifications of our behavior on them. So it became, if you will, the constitution of our culture. Guiding mm. principle leadership. To this day, I'm still astounded at the profound beauty of the statements we made. It's available online. You can look at it. The guiding principle leadership. So from that foundation, we just said, so we, we looked at each other and we said, oh my God, what have we created here? Mm-hmm. And was, this is the time of Enron. And our chief people officer looked at me and said, you know, Bob, Enron had beautiful statements on the wall. They just didn't live those values. And, and I took that as a challenge. My reaction was, we're not going to put them on the wall. We're going to put them on people's heads and hearts. And I began going out and evangelizing these principles in what we call listening sessions. And so we decided to engage people in our organization around the world in this journey with us. This is what we believe in. How are we doing? And it was astounding the stories that people told us where we were not living those values. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, 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 it created a, vis- a view of the company that we had never seen before. And I'll give you the, the, a short version of the most impactful. One gentleman said to me, you know, Mr. Chapman, I work in the assembly department. I had the privilege of going to Puerto Rico to install one of our machines. You trusted me to travel there, to treat the customer with respect, to handle it professionally. I came back in the plant. I was walking in the, the building with Mary, who works in accounting. We got to it. We live in the same neighborhood. We got to a certain point. She turned left to go into the office. She just walked in and sat down at her desk. Beginning. I had to go punch a card to validate that I got there. I had to wait until a coffee break to get my coffee. And he, and he said, and I wanted to call home and see how my young child was feeling, but I, I had to get money f- to do a payphone. Mary, who walked in the accounting department, she simply sat down, walked over and got a cup of coffee, called home. Mr. Chapman, I've got a question for you. You trusted me when I was in Puerto Rico, but you didn't trust me when I walked in this plant. And I said, you nailed it. That is, I never occurred to me I was treating you that way differently than Mary. For, forget about you. You, know, you're, you don't have to punch in every morning to guard. You get a cup of coffee, anyone, like we're going to put phones. And we begin to immediately address, I'll call them the inconsistencies of our values and our practices. And we did this around the world. And people started pointing out things where we were not living these values. And I accepted, I mean, they were brilliant. I mean, it was. Why did you trust me when I was in Puerto Rico and you didn't trust me when I was in the plant? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the last little piece of that, in that same spirit, I, I walked out with the president of the company into the plant and he wanted to go into the storeroom area where our shipping department was. And he wanted to show me some new things they were doing. 
So we walk up to this kind of caged area, which is typical for a storeroom and, and, and he knocked on the case said, can you open it? I want to show Mr. Chapman something. And in, in this environment of our guiding principal, as I said to Dan, I said, Dan, what did these people do wrong? He said, what do you mean? He said, well, they're all locked up. He said, Bob, that's the storeroom. You've got to secure the inventory. That's what we do. I said, oh, so we're saying if we don't lock up everything, people are going to steal it. Is that what we're telling people? So people are going to walk away with shafts and bearings and uh, pieces of steel. And I said, Dan, take the cages down. He said, what? I said, I'm, I'm not, I trust these people. Okay. And, and so we took the cages down and it was a profound statement to our people. We trust you. We trust you, which is the foundation of truly human leadership. That, that mutual respect, mutual trust is the way we would like to live in our society. So I would say, you know, that was kind of the journey. So we actualized it by going out and starting engaging people in dialogue about how we were living these values and they helped us see some of the inconsistencies and then we addressed them. I love that line, Mr. President, take those cages down. <laughs> like Reagan with a wall. <laughs> Mr. Gorbachev, take those, that wall down. <laughs> same emotion, same emotion. I said it with the same emotion. Well, Bob, it really illustrates, I think, one of the fundamental truths that the leader, in, the, in your case, you were the architect and the steward and the embodiment of the culture and how you want people to be treated. And you, you never tire of, of communicating that message and living that message and, uh, and, and making it real for everybody. And then it trickles down from there. I mean, I've never seen a company with so much genuine goodwill and altruism flowing through it uh, throughout. And it, it really emanates, uh, I think, from the top. And, and that whole um, uh, uh, sort of practice that you had of the so-called mind the gap and let's keep closing these gaps, right? I think that's a practice anybody can say, you know, write down your highest aspirations and then hold yourself accountable and let your people tell you where you're falling short. And as, as long as you keep responding and acting based upon those, you will change the culture quite dramatically. So Bob, the other side of your story, which is fascinating is that, you know, initially you started acquiring businesses, you know, as a strategic thing. And because you had no money, you had to acquire money losing businesses, essentially, <laughs> yeah. what, you could have, what you could afford. And to buy right? companies that nobody else wanted. You could afford those things. Yeah. <laughs> what is that? The island of unwanted toys or something. One of those things, right? It's a collection of, uh, but then you made something because you added this cultural element over time, you started to see all of those things uh, flourish. And then that really became a major part of your story. Uh, how to acquire, how to identify and acquire businesses, which not only will, you know, sort of fill out our strategic portfolio, et cetera, but where we can make a difference. I think that was really the lens with which you looked at, right? And I think the language we came up in the book was you don't acquire companies, you adopt them. It's like adopting a child versus acquiring a business, right? I mean, most companies, they buy and sell. You only acquire and you never sell. As, as far as I know, until today, you've not still you haven't sold a single business, right? And it's you're up to about about 125 acquisitions probably by now, right? Uh, and so that whole philosophy, once you're in this family, you're in this family, and turning those businesses around and, and identifying where you can add value. I mean, now of course, 
you know, people are approaching you. You don't have to go out and find them. Everybody wants to be acquired by Barry Waymiller. And, uh, and so that, I mean, like, yeah, I experienced that on, I was on an eight day trip with Bob and two of his sons in Europe. And I think we visited like seven, eight countries and 10 cities and maybe 15 companies. And uh, it was fascinating to see now founder leaders who are looking to sell their business saying, Bob, will you look after our people? That's why I want to sell to you because I know you will take care of our people. Somebody else may focus on the land and the machines and lay off you know, half the people, et cetera. So there's that whole dynamic that's, that's in play now. And Bob has continued to acquire businesses at a dizzying rate. So from that 18 million in 75, I believe you're around 3 billion now. I mean, every time I talk, it's end up around three, three or three point four billion. Three point four billion, and then I think the other thing I think for your listeners, the other thing, Raj, in that is that since nineteen ninety seven, this is kind of the benchmarks. Uh, our share price has gone up a compound fourteen percent a year for twenty, you know, or twenty five years. Now, again, your listeners might say, "Well, you're aren't you a privately held company?" The answer is yes, but we have a simulated share price that's been validated by transactions. So we have a kind of a market simulated share price that has been validated since 97 with sophisticated buyers and sellers. So we've got about 600 shares. So it's not a nonprofit or, you know, we're, we're not, we, you know, it's not a non it's a value creating organization, but we can, I believe you can create human value and economic value in harmony. They're not in disarmony. You don't have to say, well, we're going to make less money because we're going to be kind to people. Okay. I would say to you, they're in harmony, you know, but it's equal, you know, how do you, one of the things I would say to your listeners, Raj, from what you just said is, I believe it is a responsibility of every leader, whether you're president of the United States, mayor of your city, president of the company, to give those people in your span of care a grounded sense of hope for the future, that they can believe in you, come to work, raise their family. Like you said, Ken had to get laid off, downsize, right size. And the, you know, how do you start a family if you can't count on your income? How do you buy a home how do, you know, how do you deal with the stress of unsecurity that they're going to shut your plant down or downsize you? Uh, so, you know, I would say to you that when you, well, our goal is, is to give people a grounded sense of hope for the future. And the other thing I'd say that I think in the context of what you just said, that's important. Uh, when I went up to Harvard to uh, be a part of teaching our case study at Harvard, it happened to be an audience of about 160 global executives from 80 different Countries, average age, 48 years old. So about 160 really experienced executives. And they studied our case for uh, the night before, came in to discuss it in class. And uh, at the end of the discussion, Jan Rifkin, who wrote the case and was teaching the class, said to the audience, is Barry Waymiller successful because of its culture or its strategy? And so there's like another 10 minutes of intense discussion. And then they voted. 75% of the people voted that our success was because of our culture. And prior to that moment, I'd never thought about why we're successful. You know, I just never occurred to me. So Jan all of a sudden said, Bob, do you want to come up and kind of respond to that? And I think this is important to your audience. And I stood up and I said, you know, I understand why you think it's our culture because we've talked a lot about our culture, but that's not the case. The reason our company, the foundation of our success is our business model. And it's a little bit like Ferrari, the engineers of Ferrari designing the ultimate high performance engine for the Ferrari automobile. Perfect design, 
But unless you put premium fuel into that engine, it will never perform to its potential of the engineers. So our business model is the engine that we designed in 1991. And our culture is the fuel that allows that engine to perform to its potential. So it is, you can't just say a good culture is what we're after. As a responsible leader, you've got to make sure that your business model is, will give your people a grounded sense of hope for the future, okay? You can care about people all day long, but if you don't have a good business model, you're gonna hurt them. There's that great expression, you need to get the right people on the bus. I don't think that's quite right. I think you need to build a safe bus, which is your business model. And then you need mm-hmm. drivers who know where they're going and how to drive that bus safely. And then anybody that gets on the bus is going to be fine. So you know, my focus to all your listeners is your primary responsibility is to make sure that you have designed a business model as best you can that's going to give a sense of safety and security to your stakeholders. And then, of course, you empower that business model by the way you treat people, knowing that the way you treat them will allow them to share their gifts fully with you and have the joy of doing that. And then return home each night, having been valued, knowing that they matter and treat their spouses and their kids and behave in our communities with dignity because they feel part of something that values them. I'll remind you both prior to the pandemic, when we had the lowest unemployment in 50 years, we had peace in the world, and we had a strong stock market. We had the highest level of depression and anxiety we've ever had. Why? We had peace and prosperity. Because in my view, people didn't feel valued. They felt used for somebody else's purpose. So the economic model that started the Industrial Revolution, which was about economic wealth, not human. The assumption was money created happiness. It didn't work. And we've seen that right before the pandemic. And so our model says that we focus on human dignity, human value in harmony with economic value because it takes both. You can't just focus on one. You've got to have a good business model that you empower with a good culture. And then you send those people in your Hispanic care home feeling valued. And we have better families. We raise better kids and we address this poverty of dignity that exists in our country. That's brilliant. Really well put. I love it. And very clear. And, you know, as you say that, I guess, Bob, the thing that comes up to me is with such a compelling story of value creation, both economic and people. And then I look at something, let's say, like the private equity business. And I sort of say, if anybody is really driven by those returns and spends a lot of time trying to figure out how to fix the business model, they do. And it's almost like they forget to pull the, put the fuel in. Like, oh boy, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> we got a great engine, we gotta put the fuel in. And yet you, you've demonstrated very clearly that the engine doesn't run without the fuel. And when you're you know, talking to those people or somebody like that comes and says, hey, listen, you know, you've made all these acquisitions and they've been really successful quote unquote, we want your playbook, you know, let, 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 give us your playbook so we can use it and we can create value. How do you respond to them? And, and what's been your view of what's going on in that world? You know, um, I 
was very troubled as I learned about private equity. They're not bad people. I know some really fine people, good family values, good Christians that operate in, in that field and other fields, but, but it's not their fault. It's the system that is broken. If the system mm. began on share value creation, okay? Not stakeholder. Again, remember just recently, the CEO roundtable came out with a very strong statement that's mm. when Bernie Sanders and others were talking about socialism and young people actually preferred by survey mm. socialism over capitalism. So as the leaders of our capitalistic system, they came out with a statement that we need to think more about than just about the shareholders. It was a beautiful statement written by some people who meant it. The problem is their ability to do it. First of all, they're not taught how to do that. We're not taught to be leaders. We're taught to be accountants, engineers, analysts, marketing, you know, uh, strategic planners. We're not taught to be leaders, okay? Leadership is in many of our business schools is an optional course compared to accounting and math and marketing. So we have a technically oriented education. So you're seeing the manifestation of the problem and the brokenness. Remember, 88% of all people in this country feel they work for an organization that doesn't care about them. Hmm. 65% of all people would give up a salary because if they could fire their boss, okay? As Raj says, there's a 20% increase in heart attacks on Monday mornings, okay? And when I hear CEOs complain about the cost of healthcare, I say, and when I'm giving a speech to them, I said, you know, you're all worried about the cost of healthcare. You are the problem. Okay, 74% of all illnesses are chronic. The biggest cause of chronic illness is stress and the biggest cause of stress is work. Okay, so we are self-destructing as a civilization for economic gain because we think money equals happiness. And we know from Gallup that the source of happiness is a good job doing meaningful work with people you enjoy. And we know that 88% of all people feel they work for a company that doesn't care about them. So, so through our leadership institute, Chapman and Co. Leadership, as you know, Raj knows, we're out sharing this blessing, trying to help others embrace these principles so we can start healing the brokenness we see caused by the economic model, which is solely related to shareholder value. And what we realize, though, is we're treating cancer, but we're not curing cancer. Mm cure for cancer is we got to go back into education and create leaders. Well, we are, I remember I gave a speech at Brown University not too long ago and I, and I went up to Harvard ahead of time. I said, what was the purpose of education? And Harvard said, gentleman, Harvard, uh, Jen Rifkin told me, so well, to my understanding, our founding fathers wanted us to have an informed citizenry so we could have a democracy. But then the industrial revolution Barons came along like Henry Ford and other entrepreneurs. And, and, and with this economic model that created a huge amount of economic prosperity. So what did they need? They needed special engineers, accountants, production, and, you know, marketing lawyers. And so our universities migrated to become skills factories. Mm. They got the best raw material they could get, which is students with the right GPA, okay? They processed them through their system and they sold them to the market. If they got a good price for these kids, they must be doing well. So our universities, as one dean told me, we give the market what they want. Not what they need, we give them what they want. And they want, they want specialists, just like all fields. So in almost, I, I speak in every part of our society from healthcare 
to universities, uh, to government, to business. I see this brokenness. We take specialists in medicine and we make them hospital administrators. We take accountants in business and we make them presidents. We do not prepare our young people, our students, our graduate students to become leaders. We, pre we prepare them for what the market will pay buy, which is specialists. And then we put them in leadership position with absolutely no experience in leadership. So the problem we face in this world is our education system is giving the market what they want, what they get rewarded for, which is specialists, okay? Not leaders. And what we see in, in our political system, we see in our healthcare system, our business, we don't have leaders who have the skills and the courage to care for the people they have the privilege of leading. That is the foundational issue. Mm. And until we address this in education, private equity, public companies that, you know, Simon Sinek has a great statement. In the military, we honor those who give themselves in service of others. And in business, we give bonuses to people who sacrifice others in service of themselves. Simon says, if we can teach our military leaders to, to, to know their primary responsibilities, the men and women in their command, why can't we teach business leaders that their primary responsibility is the men and women in their span of care? And the answer is we can, we are, and that is what's going to deal with those issues that you just talked about. Well, Bob, as you know, our book is called Everybody Matters. And I think that is such a profound statement. Everybody matters and everybody needs to win. And, and that is something that doesn't happen in our system. Right? There are a lot of people who are not winning by any measure that are being left behind. And that is something I think that is so important about what you do at Barry Vemiller and the culture, this phrase of courageous patience that, you know, we, it thinks it takes time and we, are, we live in a culture where everything happens now or you're out. And I think in Barry Vemiller, even people who are skeptic to the point of hostile to this new culture, you know, they don't get fired. They say, okay, you'll get it when you get it. The bus will keep coming around. You get on when you're ready. Yeah, yeah. I just thought it's such a humane, forgiving, accepting, you know, culture uh, that you've created there. And one of the other elements of that is, uh, is, is your culture of recognition and celebration. And I think that is also something that, that makes you quite unique in terms of how you approach that. And if you just talk a little bit about the kind of recognition, I've, I've, I've actually participated in a few of those. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really incredible to experience. Well, you know, Raj, for your listeners, the thing you have to understand is about the time, you know, because my dad died when I was 30 and I got thrown into, you know, I stepped into leadership at a young age, at the same age, I was raising six kids. Mm -hmm. And Cynthia and I were trying to be good steward, uh, stewards of these precious lives entrusted to us. So we would go to classes and learn about parenting because, you know, we don't teach in education parenting and we hope we had good parents. And then before we hope we are good parents, but, you know, by the time you raise six kids, you'd figure out what you did wrong with all six. Right. Uh, and so I would say to you that in the context of our leadership evolution, which you just said, one of the things we learned at a very early age uh, of raising our kids is you, if you don't compliment them five times more, then you might suggest things they could do better, like clean the room or, you know, be down for breakfast and et cetera, or do their homework. Um, it's hard for them to deal with, uh, if you will, the suggested improvements. And so, and, and that was very period, you know, because we find ourselves, why didn't you clean up your room? You know, why didn't you come down and, and instead of, boy, thank you for cleaning your room. That was really great that you did. So 
so I took that in the business and I said, you know what? As one gentleman said to me, you know, Mr. Chapman, I come to work, I get 10 things right and I don't hear a word and I get thing, one thing wrong and I get my ass chewed out. I said, that is brilliant. We tend to have a society where we focus on the brokenness, not the goodness. And so there's an expression we adopted early on, Raj, that kind of puts all those pieces together. Shine a light in your organization. Look, in, look for the goodness wherever it is and hold it up and say thank you. And so when people, it's interesting, it's kind of the same context. When I give my speeches around the world, one of the most frequent, the most frequent question I ever get is, what do you do about the people that don't get it? And I said, even in a church, I was asked that same question. And I said, you know, it's interesting to me because that reflects kind of the world we have. We're looking for the brokenness. And what we do is we spend so much time looking for the goodness and holding it up and saying, thank you, that it kind of drowns out the badness. If you think of the social and the media right now and the news, which is all about the brokenness in the world, there's no way we tend more five times more talking about in the news, the goodness, people that did good things in the world than the brokenness. So we, we focus on the brokenness, intensify it, and we did the same thing at work. So our goal is, is to look for the goodness and say thank you wherever it occurs in a thoughtful, timely, and appropriate way. Not just good job, slap on the back. But we, and quite often in a new experience, when we recognize the goodness in people, we do it in front of their family as a surprise, which is profound. Because who more than your family, your kids, would like to see you recognized for your goodness? They will ne- the kids will never forget recognition. So... We, we actually have a class that we teach in our university. How do you let people know they matter? This is not a skill taught anywhere in education. It developed, it, it came to us, you know, in, in this journey of realizing that, you know, that we needed to bring this to the organization for people to go home and feel bad. Because the neat thing about that, Raj, because you saw it, when I recognize Mary or Bill for their goodness in thoughtful, appropriate ways in front of their family, Everybody else feels good. Okay, the ripple effect is just, you can see it in their body. Oh, that's, you know, as, as I recognize this gentleman in Green Bay not too long ago, as up on a stage in the assembly plant, gentleman I didn't know, but he had gotten chosen as a, a great leader. And I, I was recognizing him as he walked towards this wooden platform we had. I think eight or 10 of his family members walked out of the side door to see it, and it, everybody got emotional. Because the family wanted to see their father, their uncle, their brother-in-law recognized for their goodness. So we spend a lot of time looking for the goodness in people and saying thank you. And we have, as you know, several programs. We have the Guiding Principles of Leadership. We have the High Five Award, the H3 Award. Ways in which we can look for the goodness and say thank you and recognize them in a way that is meaningful to the family. Mm. Love that. And... um... You know, I, I just, I don't know, as you're talking, there's a, a big hit over here right now called Ted Lasso, the uh, uh, a streaming thing from Apple Video. And it's uh, basically the story about they take it a, a very optimistic, let's recognize the good kind of American football coach, and they bring him over to England to coach 
a football team, which he knows nothing about. And, you know, he could be, he's almost like the TV model of what you're saying, you know, and over here <laughs> at first he got criticized for like, who could watch this American blah, you know, this optimism, this rah, rah, everybody's good. We're all, and it's just, a, it's, it's funny to watch how people's reactions have slowly, slowly evolved to say, wow, you know, that's that's a kind of like a human thing about caring <laughs> and beneath all of our cynicism there's really the this need for caring yeah, so well, i have to, I, so Tim, I just want to amplify you use the word caring i just want your viewers to understand we don't use love you know we use the word care okay mm. and it, that the words we use matter Okay, I hate the word management because it means the manipulation of others for your success. I love the word leadership, which means the stewardship of the lives entrusted to you. And it's a profound mm. responsibility. So, and, and again, optimism, uh, optimism is incredibly important in this. And so you just talked about. So leaders, remember, sometimes we judge the people in our organization. And instead of saying, maybe it's our leadership that is not right for those people. Okay, so I mean, I've seen a baseball player in the Cardinals traded to the Atlanta Braves and he was a mediocre player for us and he was an all-star for Atlanta. Same guy, same profession, different coach. And so I would say to you what Raj talked about that uh, actually Bill Urey captured the World Peace Negotiator when he came in. He said, what Bayer Wimler has is courageous patience. And what we basically say is, and I want to amplify that, Everybody in our span of care has a different journey through life, their experiences, their parent, their childhood, their personality. And you can't expect everybody to stand up and say, I'm ready. So our goal is focus on the people that do believe and give those that are not yet ready to believe time to decide. And the law of early adoption says on time, people will start stepping on the bus with you, but they'll step in their time. In their way and we celebrate and welcome them when they come so it's it's really called courageous patience mm. the idea is that there's goodness in everybody and we hope to find it now that frequent question is what do you do about the people who don't get it and i say treat them like you'd like your son or daughter treated if they didn't get it and they say well that would be different i said why it's different that's somebody's <laughs> son or daughter you're treating that way so our standard of care if if we can't find a way to, to work with you or another individual in our culture and we need to address it. It's like hard love and parenting. Okay. Sometimes the right best thing you can do for somebody is say, you know, I think, I think we reached a point where you need to honestly look for another opportunity because this just isn't working for you or our team, but you treat them with respect. And you don't walk to their desk, say, clean out your desk, walk them to the door and send them out. I mean, treating people with respect and dignity is the foundation of true human leadership. Treat them like you'd like your son or daughter treated if they didn't perform well or they didn't have the right culture. And that standard of care always catches people off because you know they're employees, they're an engineer, they're not somebody's child you're talking to. They're they're a you know they're non-performing or non-cultural uh, performing individuals. So that standard of care is I want to emphasize is simply look at the people you have the privilege of leading as somebody's child and treat them like you would like your child. And we would have a dramatically different world if we did that. Well, I love that. And I think there's also another phrase that I want you to help us unpack a little bit as well, which is the, the idea of responsible freedom. You know, that uh, that's another idea that's in the book and 
and I think is an important part of what you're trying to do. So maybe tell us and our listeners a little bit about what that means to you and how that came about. Well, again, going back to my story, this is all happening while we're trying to be a better parent. Okay. Responsible freedom with your kids is not just a, you know, it's age appropriate. So responsible freedom starts with the foundation of trust. Okay. Now, again, uh, you don't let your kids go ride their bike out in the street when they're first running around the bike. So you probably start in the driveway or in the backyard. So our goal is to, is to look at the people and basically build it around trust. It goes back to the cage we took down. That's responsible freedom, okay? I, I think, you know, I remember when I was in public accounting and one job we were on, as we left the, the building, the plant where we were auditing the company, they had to check your lunchbox, your briefcase to make sure you weren't stealing anything. I believe when we create an environment where we trust each other and we we constantly earn and validate that trust that sends people home feeling valued and they trust others. You know, one thing I, I would add there in terms of responsible freedom, it's just, it's what we talk about with our kids. You know, you want them to make their mistakes while they're at home. So when they get out in life and they make mistakes, they, they can deal with it. You know, they're not learning to fix things when they're outside in kind of the more challenging world. So responsible freedom says, you know, don't micromanage your people give them a chance to show their gifts, learn, make mistakes, because my greatest growth is the mistakes I made. And so give people a chance to make mistakes, responsible freedom. It's not freedom, it's responsible freedom, okay? And uh, so it, it really came from our parenting. So it's just one of our practices. But again, it is my basic personality to trust people, okay? Mm. You, have to, you, have to, you have to violate that for me to feel differently, but then I start with foundation of I trust people. I trust in the goodness of people. And when you begin that way, it's a totally different perspective than when you build cages around inventory and then you check. So so many businesses, the foundation is you can't trust anybody. So you, you better uh, validate or, or check. So, you know, that, that's just it's part of the fabric of uh, being good stewards of people's lives. You know, when people, the good news, again, another piece that I want you to listen to is, the good news is caring is contagious, okay? I had no idea when we began caring about our team members that it would release in them a profound sense of caring for others. So again, when Georgetown University and Washington University did a study of our company, they found a high degree of altruism in our company, which means uh, that people did things for others without expecting anything in return. And I'll add to that, when General Flynn, who wrote the forward to Simon Sinek's books, came in from the military to, to tour our sites, he said, what strikes me the most profound is that people described it as a family. He said, they didn't describe it like a family. They said, they described it as a family. I said, General Flynn, that's really interesting because nobody's related to anybody. So we got into kind of a deep discussion about why did they say it's a family? Because what does the word family mean? in our civilization. It means the place of ultimate care and safety, right? So when people describe the work environment as a family, they don't mean we're related. They don't, you know, what they mean is I feel safe and valued. Okay. That's the interpretation we came away with. So I, and these were not our intention. We had no idea this outcome. We just started by saying, we just want people to know they matter. 
We want to send people home fulfilled. We didn't even know at the time it would affect the way their marriage and their kids. It was just a simple, simple beginning. We just want people to know they matter. And, and how do we actualize that? Well, we teach, we teach them how to listen to each other, which is the greatest act of caring and leadership. We teach recognition and celebration, which is how to let people know they matter. And we teach culture of service, how to seize the opportunity to serve others. So our education journey from management to leader is composed of those three components. And it's amazing the emotional reaction you get from adults when you teach them those fundamentals. Empathetic listening, recognition and celebration and culture of service, because they realize the people they've hurt in their life unintentionally because they didn't have those skills or practices. Hmm. So I think, Bob, as we know, many families don't embody those highest, you know, many families are dysfunctional. And I think what's happening because of the uh, very deliberate approach to creating that kind of a culture and then the education that you have, that people's actual families are healing because of their experience at their work family, you know, at Barry Miller. So it's, it's pretty extraordinary. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was the uh, 2008 financial crisis. You know, a lot of companies are, are, are kind and uh, generous to their employees when times are good, but the real test happens when there's a crisis, uh, an existential crisis really in the world. And that's what you faced in 2008, and that became a, a test, a litmus test of your culture. Did you really mean it? Were those just words, or how are you going to respond now, Bob? Uh, so please take us back to, uh, to those dark days. Well, the timing of this is perfect, Raj, because I, I believe we created the Guiding Principles of Leadership probably around 2002, in the early 2000s, and, and the economic crisis hit in 08, 09. And I remember, in, in, I think it was September of 08, about we started hearing about the collapse of the financial systems and these, uh, and the economic crisis that I'd never seen anything like it happened so suddenly before. And I remember in January, so several months into it, I walked into our board meeting and I, I hadn't even sat down yet. And our board members said to us, Bob, aren't you going to have to lay off people? And I said, I don't think so. We've got a pretty good backlog. Our company's strong financially. So I think we'll be okay. Because I've checked with people. So they said, well, aren't you being an optimist? And I, I said, I don't think so. So about six weeks later, I'm in Italy. The economic crisis is obviously continuing to be on everybody's mind. And I get an email from America that says, Mr. Chapman, our largest customer just in, in one of our major divisions just placed on hold a major order. I thought, oh my God, it's hit us. You know, we, we thought we, it was one thing not to get new orders, but it's another thing to actually have orders canceled that we had in our backlog. And I sat in my hotel room because again, I've been evangelizing about our guiding relationship. We measure success by the way we touch lives of people. And all of a sudden, we have this economic crisis. Now, prior to our guiding principle leadership, I would have done what everybody else does, which is normal, but I would have right-sized our company. It's not personal, Raj, but we can't afford you anymore. So I'm sure, good luck. Nice to have had you here. And then we did that. I mean, it's not, you know, we, we dehumanize it. We right-size our business. We downsize our business. We don't say we destroy lives. We say we right-size our business. On a sidebar, I, I once asked the people in the Air Force, 
I was speaking at the Air Force uh, where we teach the Top Gun pilots. I said, how do you train young men and women to kill other people? And the generals responded to me and said, we don't. We teach them to take out targets that made bad decisions. Targets, not people. So what do we do in business? We downsize, we right-size, you know, we headcount reduction. We, de- we, we have a language that, that, that helps us deal with the dehumanizing actions we're going to take, okay? And just like the Air Force. So I sat in my hotel room and said, if we let people go in this crisis, we're going to hurt people. And if we measure success by the way we touch the lives of people, we can't do that. And so that line of thinking caused me to think entirely differently than I'd ever thought before in my 20 years in business. And I said, out of me again, came this idea. What if we asked everybody to take a month off without pay so we wouldn't have to let anybody go? So I emailed back to the United States to our chief people officer, Ron, and I said, I'm going to be back in a couple of days from Italy. How do we do this? You know, how do we do this? Uh, and came back, they did, did a brilliant job of articulating. We announced it to the team. We're going to ask everybody to take a month off without pay so we don't have to let anybody go and deal with a downturn. You'd think, what happened? The reaction was unbelievably positive. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it was not to save the company because people basically had an opportunity to say, I helped my neighbor. I helped the person sitting next to me. They did it as a personal contribution, uh, a benevolent act to their fellow team members. And it was profound. Some people actually stood up and said, I'll take my month and I'll take somebody else's two weeks who can't afford to take. So the acts of generosity were unbelievable. And the, and the morale went just through the sky because they were seeing all their friends getting laid off and downsized income. So it was I mean, I had no idea. I'd never seen it, never heard about it, but this, if everybody would take a month off and we said, you can take it off when it works for you, not when it works for us. We put their interests. They said, look, if, I, if you're going to take a month off of the pay, I'm going to give you something which is quality time with your family in the right time of year. Now our team was very much against that because they said, well, we got to run production. I said, guys, we are going to, if we're going to ask them to do this and the result was amazing. So I would say to you, Raj, also that, emphasize if Ford's going to build a new F-150, they take the prototypes into the worst terrain, drive it as hard as they can to see how the chassis, the engine holds up. Well, if you design a business model, my, as I gave you, which is my primary responsibility, drive it into the 0809 economy and see how it did. General Electric collapsed, Bank of America collapsed, most companies collapsed share price. Our share price went up 11%. Okay, and we didn't hurt the people whose lives are entrusted to us. And we came out of that downturn, which you know, probably nine months later we started seeing positive, and it went up like this. Why? Because we actually came out stronger than we went into it, because we had validated in a way nobody imagined the foundation of our relationship with them. We care about you, even in the worst of times. We never forgot that. Pr- privilege we have of your time with our organization. So that was an incredibly valid, but again, a strength of our business model and then a different way of looking at this through a different lens, which is we measure success by the way we touch the lives of people. So we had this foundational document that allowed us to address this crisis 
in a way I'd never occurred to me before. Make sense? Yeah, and I know that the culture, you know, there were still a lot of doubters and fence sitters in the culture until that time. And, and pretty much all of them became true believers to the point of many of them became evangelists oh, yeah, yeah, right. Right, for this culture. And, uh, and also what you did because your business took off afterwards because other people were scrambling to rehire and retrain and, and you were ready. And in fact, many of your people had acquired additional skills during oh, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the downtimes, right? And then what you did for them, I remember the conversation you had with Cynthia. You said, business is doing far better than I could have hoped. Now, you know, what should we do? Right? And tell us how you handled coming out of that. Well, the interesting thing is that uh, I, I met a lady who worked for American Express in this crisis. And she said, American Express suspended 401k matches. And again, going into this crisis, we, it looked like the world was falling apart. So I said, well, I think it saved us a million and a half dollars a quarter. If we suspend the 401k, just our match. So we're just our match. It'll save us another four and a half. And that's the long-term issue. So we can deal with it. So again, I had no idea what the outcome would be. So we suspended the 401k match. Nobody complained because they kept their job. They had security. So that, that meant a lot to them. But what was interesting is that as we were coming out and we started doing better, I went home one night, as you said, to Cynthia and I said, you know, when things got worse dramatically, we asked people to sacrifice. And they did. And to honor that, we're now coming out stronger than we thought. Are we going to, are we going to, in the same way, respond to being better than we thought? And Cynthia kind of said, well, why don't you give everybody a bonus? And I said, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't feel right. Why don't we go back to something that's foundationally important to people, which is their long-term retirement savings? Why don't we go give them their match back to them? Well, when we had the thought, there's no question that was the right thing to do because their retirement's important. They gave up for us. We gave up. So it cost us now a million half dollars incremental, but it was a, it further validated because nobody, and we never promised them we we're going to rematch it. Maybe we'd resume. To our knowledge, we were one of the few companies in the countries that went, not just resumed it, but went back and made up that 401k match. That was another statement of kind of stepping outside the norm to show that we care. Your retirement's important to us. Your savings important. And the fact that you've been putting money in the 401k, we want to continue to encourage that. So it rewarded behavior that we wanted to encourage people to provide for their retirement. So that again was a further case. The other thing we learned, Raj, that I never, and I don't want your listeners to hear this. I thought when I let, you know, let's pick, we're going to let 200 people go. You know, it's, I can monetize what that means, the savings. And, you know, maybe I know the people I don't. What never occurred to me, though, and I want your listeners to hear this, is that Bill and Mary sat next to each other and Bill got let go and Mary didn't. But Mary knows Bill's kids. She knows her family. So Mary, Mary, Mary may have kept her job, but she feels very bad about Bill having been let go because Bill's got three kids. He just bought a house. And so she, while she kept her job, she feels badly about the way her colleague was treated to be let go like that. And she says, if they did that to Bill today, will they do that to me tomorrow? So the fabric of trust the collateral damage of downsizing layoff, which is really an economic model. The human 
cost you cannot even begin to calculate because if you did it to Bill, you're going to eventually do it to me. So the feeling of security, confidence, trust, when we downsize layoff, that is an economic model, but the human consequences, you can't even begin to calculate. Well, Bob, you have influenced uh, my life and my thinking and uh, everything about it in so many ways. And when one of the things that really came out of my experience working with you and getting to know you was uh, came out of a conversation we had a few years ago and I was, we were catching up and hadn't talked in a while. I said, how are you doing? He said, oh, we're looking at about 10 to 15 acquisitions uh, this year. <laughs> I think at that time you were at about 85 or 90. Uh, and I just said, Bob, as far as I remember, you have like 26 children and grandchildren by now. Uh, and, uh, you know, you've got all these beautiful homes and these jets and you've got all the money. You, you could be enjoying your life fully, right? I mean, this is what you do is not easy. And you're, I, I've seen how you work. I've seen the schedule you keep, uh, you know, when you go to Europe and do all those things. So I said, why, why are you doing all this? You know, what is it that's driving you? And I'll never forget what you said. You said, Raj, you know, I don't know how much time I have. And on my deathbed, I will not be proud of the machines we built or the money uh, I made, but I will be proud of the lives uh, I touched. And I want to touch as many lives as I can right, in this lifetime. And I said, Bob, you're not growing a business. You're spreading a healing ministry. Uh, you know, there, there are companies out there that everybody's obsessed with growth in the world of business, as we know. But I say, why do you want to grow? And is it to feed an ego? Is it to, uh, you know, become number one? Is it kind of the, what we call the empire building energy? You know, when you had empires in the old days and they wanted to conquer every land and just so that they could fill their ego and, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and feel powerful. And I said, with that energy, when you have companies out there acquiring other companies, and the first thing they do is they lay off 30% of the people and then they set aggressive targets. And, you know, everybody gets put on this, this stressful uh, kind of fast-moving treadmill, uh, 3G capital out of Brazil. I mean, that's empire-building energy, and that has a lot of suffering associated with it. And you don't really create anything. You're not, incre you're not creating incremental value. You're just sucking more value out of people. And so I said, you're spreading a healing ministry, and that kind of planted the seeds for the idea of business as healing. And I truly do believe that you're the prototypical healing organization. Life gets better. There are people waiting for Bob to show up. I think one of the people said that when our company was struggling and dying, we had all these other buyers circling, you know, like vultures, right? To say, what can we pick out of this, right? There's machines, there's land, you know, not, nothing, uh, you know, no concern for the people. So Bob also came and he was circling but more like a guiding angel, right? To say, can I give these people a future? Can we save this company? Can we save this town? And there are people, as I said, waiting for you to show up in that way. And to me, that's a fundamental business lesson that, that when you have a business like yours that indeed heals people, it heals their families, it heals their communities, it gives them a future, then you have an obligation to grow. You actually need to, you know, you've got, you're on fire because you need to spread this. And that's, I know why you've started the Leadership Institute. And that's why you're out speaking all over the world doing this, because it's not just about Barry Wehmiller anymore. This is something that you want to spread, right? There's an evangelical energy to this, but coming with that right motivation is not to feed a human ego. It's really to serve in the deepest way possible. So I really want to thank you for that. That's not a question so much as the, as an appreciation 
for how you have impacted. And I know that that, that idea has touched a lot of people's uh, hearts as well, that yeah, business in fact is fundamentally about that. It's about us caring for each other and growing as human beings. And we can do that at scale when we, when we have the right approach. Yeah, well, you know, Raj, I just want to add, I appreciate your comments profoundly, but I, and I, I would say to you that uh, I always say you can quit a job, but you can't quit a calling. And you know this well enough that I believe some, there's no way this accountant from Ferguson, Missouri thought of these ideas we're talking about here, that somebody is simply using us to show the world the way isn't, we were intended to live and work together where people feel valued and we create human and economic value. And so I believe that whatever that higher power is that's using us to show the world that brought these ideas into our, through these revelations in our minds, uh, that it is our responsibility to share that with the world because of the blessing we've had. So it, it becomes kind of a, uh, a purpose and every time that we have the opportunity to invite another company into our family, it's like opening another church in another community, okay? And um, I'll never forget Raj, on a recent, uh, right before the pandemic, I was doing my European tour about 15 speeches in five days and I landed in Belga uh, Belgrave uh, and where we had just acquired a company and actually we were told that the bid we had was not the highest bid, but the owner picked us because of our culture. This is in Serbia. So I wanted to meet these people who put their faith in us. So we land in the private terminal. We walk through the private terminal and there's this van, this big van. And on the side of it is Bob Chapman, truly human leadership. And, 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 and I was profoundly touched that these people put their faith in us, their, the level of excitement, they were bringing this. So it's like, it becomes like a, a foundation of beliefs that we are called to spread this message that we've been blessed with because it would heal so much of the brokenness we see in the world right now. Because right now it's, it's a, we define success as money, power, and position. And it doesn't matter how you get it as long as you've got it because then you can write big checks to charity and people will celebrate you as a wonderful family because you wrote a big check. And this great New York Times author who once asked this group of people who wrote big checks, where did you get your money? And they didn't like that question at all because we have a society where we view charity as writing checks to well-intentioned organizations. The greatest act of charity is not the checks we write. It's the way we treat people in our span of care. We wouldn't need all the charities in this world to fix the brokenness. If we as leaders embrace the responsibility we have ourselves to the people in our care. But what we do is we treat people with as functions for our organizational success, our personal success. And then we make a lot of money and we write checks to charities. There's a way of getting into our ultimate destination. You know, and so we, again, I would say to everybody, if we all as leaders embrace the profound responsibility of the people in our span of care, we could profoundly address this poverty of dignity and begin healing instead of being broken in this economic model, which is all about money, power, and position, not human dignity, not human flourishing, because the assumption is money equals happiness. And we know that is not the case. 
Rob, this has uh, been an inspiring talk and you've had inspiring words, but more importantly, you're an inspiring example of actually how to do it. And I want to really profoundly thank you for your time today and your candor with us. Well, listen, it is honestly, it is a privilege to meet people of Raj's caliber who help spread this message in the world. Because again, I, I feel my greatest concern uh, was that that this message would die with me. We've seen great leaders come and then they go and their organizations flounder. So we, I have a commitment. My greatest commitment is that this not, this blessing we've been given not die with me. And I hope your listeners will join us in this journey to so, show that we can create economic value and human value when we, when we have a solid business model and we treat the people in our span of care with respect and dignity, we can start solving the problems in family units and communities and young kids if we send people home feeling valued. So Timothy and Raj, it is always a pleasure. I really appreciate your support and the way you, I mean, Raj makes my simple accounting words seem eloquent. So uh, I'm very privileged to have, consider him a deep friend and thank you for this opportunity. Thank you, thank you, Bob. You. You, you don't need my help. You are eloquent uh, <laughs> on your own and deeply moving. So thank you so much for everything that you do and for who you are and uh, for all that you are, will continue to do to make our world better. Thank you, Bob. I'm going to try with your help. Thank you both. Okay, thanks. And thank you to our listeners. Thank you for listening to this episode and on whatever service that you're listening to, you'll see a subscribe button. Please feel free to hit the subscribe button and go over to iTunes and Apple podcasts. And if you want and you enjoyed this, leave us a good review and your feedback is always most welcome. You can do that at theconsciouscapitalists.com where there is a uh, space on that website for you to leave Raj and I a message. And thank you to Gary Jones, our producer. And thank you, Raj. Thank you, Timothy. Pleasure as always. <laughs> <laughs>